Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for Conversations in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, really looking at novel therapies targeting the immune system for elderly and unfit patients. During this segment, we'll be discussing the current treatment and management strategies for older patients with newly diagnosed AML. My name is Tapin Kadia. I'm in the Leukemia Department at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. And I'm joined here today by my illustrious colleagues, Dr. Dan Pallier and Dr. Eunice Wong. Uh, Dan, you know, it's great to see you. Um, I think let's start this conversation by talking a little bit about, you know, how we first start evaluating patients who are older and, and how to determine whether they're flareal or whether they're eligible for intensive chemotherapy or low-intensity therapy. This is always kind of a, 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 a topic that people argue about. And how do you do it at your institution? Dan, you want to get started? Yeah, it's a great, great question. It's, um, you know, I think this is a super subjective thing that we would like to make more objective, but it's really, really hard. You know, at our institution, you know, we talk a lot about Ferrara criteria. We talk a lot about, you know, the AML score, the online calculator that you can plug data into to have it spit out, you know, your patient's chance of, of, uh, of a, uh, you know, treatment-related mortality event with intensive induction chemotherapy. But I think still most of us just use the eyeball test, you know, looking at organ function, performance status, age. Um, I think that's kind of what we're doing and what we, you know, would like to, you know, have have a better, more objective way of, of doing things. You know, I, I think the big change now is what to do with biological risk factors and how to sort of separate that metric from, you know, some of these more um, host-dependent issues of, uh, you know, related to frailty and comorbidities. But I think that's kind of an interesting new new twist. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think that it's tough. I think uh, same here. We kind of do that eyeball test. You sort of know when a person is going to be frail for intensive chemotherapy. But sometimes, you know, more more recently, we've also been incorporating some of the sort of the genetic risk into whether or not I'm going to give intensive chemotherapy. So it's not just the patient's frailty, but hey, look, you got a core binding factor AML versus look, you got a really high risk P53 mutated AML. Eunice, do you take any of those into account or, or how do you assess frailty and comorbidities when picking treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complex dynamic. I mean, I think there's certainly subjectivity from the physician's point of view, also individuality from the the patient's point of view. I mean, I think a lot of the, nowadays we have a lot more shared decision-making. We have factors like, economic, logistical, financial, even um, playing a role, individual goals of care. You know, we have patients that certainly could be candidates for intensive chemotherapy, but don't want it. So I think uh, we've moved away from, uh, and I think this is reflected even in the and the more recent NCCN, we've moved away from using age alone as a criteria and moved more into this holistic where we're not saying you're 60, 65, you're 70, you know, whatever, but we're saying, you know, I think most of us would agree 75 and above per, for our criteria is as unfit. 
And I think the gray area is that 60 to 75-year-old zone where some people are incredibly fit and, and robust and vigorous and want everything done. And then there are some really old-looking 60-year-olds which really um, don't want anything. And again, we have that sort of gestalt, you know, like my nurse pictures and my providers, this person is not a candidate. And we'll say, but they're 55. And then we go look at them and we go, oh, yeah, no, 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 no intensive chemo for you. But you bring up a really good point. You know, we're getting to understand some of the therapies for intensive versus less intensive. And we're moving away from sort of the ELN, which is really younger, fitter, intensive therapy to newer prognostication systems for um, not only who is, is fit, um, but who is fit biologically. You know, if you have a, per the ELN, something, uh, a type of cancer that is not going to respond to intensive chemotherapy, you might be fit, but we're not going to give you intensive chemo because your disease does not fit the category that it's going to respond. So I, I think it's it's a it's a changing world out there. And I think um, this fitness is going to be something that we're going to continue to debate as a, potentially our standard of care is changing and even as we speak. Yeah, I think you really crystallized the point. I think there's an evolution in how we're assessing fitness and whether it's just biologically fit for the patient, but also biologically fit in terms of the disease. One last question on this topic for both of you. You guys can speak up, whoever. But a lot of times we talk about fitness of intensive induction chemotherapy or whatever we were giving them for remission induction. And then do you necessarily use that same judgment for when you're considering these folks for transplant? Like, for example, I may have a patient where I may say, look, I think I can get you into remission with lower intensity therapy, but I'm still someone, you're still someone I think just should go for allergenic stem cell transplant, which many think of as a very sort of intensive approach. Do you ever have that paradox in your in your in your uh, practice? So, so just to speak, and I know Dan probably has a lot to say about this as well, but I tend not to make that 100% judgment about transplant, no transplant at the time of their presentation of disease. I've seen a lot of patients look really unfit and not look great, and but that may be because they've been suffering from severe anemia for weeks and they have some comorbidities. And once I treat them with a couple cycles of bananaclax-based therapy, they perk up. Uh, the availability of haploidentical and uh, post-transplant psi and some of those other modalities has allowed us to have a broader range of donors and to perform transplants in people that we wouldn't have a few years ago. So I sometimes reserve transplant eligibility until after they uh, they get a couple rounds of therapy and then I reassess their quote-unquote eligibility for that. Dan, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, can't can't agree more with you with, with what you said. I'll just add one thing that, you know, beyond the sort of ability of a patient to become more fit for a transplant with effective treatment of their disease, I also think that for many patients, a non-myeloblative or reduced intensity conditioning transplant is not more toxic than standard, you know, intensive induction chemotherapy. And I know sometimes that's hard for people to wrap their heads around because a transplant is such a big undertaking. But I definitely agree that there are patients who are just fine candidates for a non-myoblative transplant that would do really, really poorly with intensive induction. So decoupling those things uh, is important, I think. Yeah, I think that's the point. That's excellent. Great. Okay, guys. So we have a lot of new therapies now, AML, which we did not have several years ago. So let's get into some of these. I want to hear about, you know, sort of the revolution in AML with the incorporation of venetoclax in some of these therapies. Then we'll talk about FLT3 inhibitors, glastigib. I think really important therapies, finally showing some survival benefit. 
Dan, you want to just maybe talk us through quickly the Lotus RC and HMA and Venetoclax and, and what that's meant for patients and, and how you use it? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, um, uh, as you well know, you know, sort of straddling in, in our careers, the sort of before and after of effective lower intensity therapies such as these. I mean, it's a whole new world of options for patients who really had nothing effective or to be enthusiastic about, you know, if, if they were older or or unfit for intensive induction to now having real options. So, you know, um, venetoclax-based therapies with either low-dose uh, cytarabine or an HMA um, or glastigib um, with low-dose uh, cytarabine for these uh, unfit pop, uh, patient populations, you know, having these options of, of therapies that are better than a previous historical alternative is game-changing. Um, and and so you know, still a lot more to do. We have a lot uh, more uh, way, you know, to, to go to to see this through and to keep moving the needle. But I think this these represent really um, impressive, uh, you know, first steps toward uh, a, a, a much better treatment outlook for these patients. Absolutely, couldn't put it better. Uh, Eunice, you've you've done a lot of work in the development of flip inhibitors, particularly for older patients in the front line. How do we use split inhibitors? Um, HMAs, HMA VEN. What what is the approach that's best for these folks? Well, I think technically, you know, with the um, the results of the GILT AZA versus AZA trial, you know, there was no improved survival with the combination upfront GILT approach uh, with AZA as opposed to AZA alone. Interestingly enough, though, in that trial, patients who were in that that truncated arm that just got GILT alone had about a twenty percent overall response rate. So I do think targeted therapies um, and uh, belong in the upfront setting. The perfect example of that is the use of the ivocytinib monotherapy um, has efficacy, same efficacy in the upfront setting as it has in relapsing fracture. And I suspect that um, targeted therapies are going to be part of our regimen. I think the beauty of using some targeted therapies for these patients is that they're much less toxic. Um, I think um, whether you give uh, anything with monoclax, there tends to be an associated myelosuppression, which can be poorly tolerated in some of these older unfit individuals, particularly patients that may have baseline um, severe cytopenias to begin with, and then you're sort of layering on the venetoclax. So I think FLT3 inhibitors uh, right now are not indicated in the frontline setting, although we have upfront trials looking at triplet gilt ven aza which may prove to be um, instrumental, but those regimens are going to use a very truncated then dosing, if, if we're going to move that forward. Um, we do know that some people are using, uh, because we know that FLT3 is a mechanism of resistance, that the FLT3 mutant clones get selected out with VEN HMA therapy. Uh, I've seen patients get VEN-AZA up front, and when, the, when their disease comes back and maybe doing sequential FLT3 inhibitor therapy after VEN-AZA, if you get emergence of a FLT3 mutation, in general, though, I think using some of these targeted approaches in elderly patients really opens the door. And these are patients that even a few years ago, we would say, You're, you should go to hospice. And then we were treating them with AZA alone. And then even with Venaza, and like, well, maybe they're not, they're not good with Venaza. That's still too toxic for them. So I think some targeted single agent therapy or you know LDAC based approaches are allowing another subset of even more frail people uh, to get therapy. No, great, great points. I think that you're right. As we combine these new agents in the front line or even the relapse setting, we really have to be cognizant of the safety and really 
study these in clinical trials before we sort of democratize these to, to everyone. So I think that's what these studies are for. Dan, you know, um, you just brought up ibocitinib uh, in the front line as a single agent. Wow, just a single agent therapy for old frail patients. And acitinib also, both of those, as you know, approved for frail older patients who are ineligible for other therapy and actually seeing nice responses. Agile showing a nice uh, sort of survival benefit. Can you take us through sort of frontline um, IDH mutant patient treatment who are older and unfit? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think um, there's, you know, randomized high-quality data uh, for the use of ivacidinib and azacitidine in this unfit um, IDH1-positive newly diagnosed population. And I think we're all really impressed by the results from that study. Um, and I think it's a very, uh, a very viable option, um, you know, for for uh, for use in that population. Of course, you know, the enosidinib plus azacitidine data are not the the same. There, one could argue that you know the the reasons why that may be, but that's not you know an approved um, path, uh, therapeutic path. And you know, I, I think um, while ivacidinib does have single agent approval in the upfront unfit um, setting, I think, you know, I really do try to use it with azacitidine if at all possible, just because of that really high level data. Now, there are, um, uh, of course, some patients that are probably just too frail for that combination. And in those situations, you know, the single agent IDH1 inhibitor um, is, is, is available, but I really do uh, try hard to, to get patients who might be uh, eligible for this treatment to treat them with the, with both ivacidinib and azacitidine. Yeah, great point. So we do the, some similar things. Uh, we also consider triplets in some cases on clinical trials. And finally, we forget, you know, galastigib, the hedgehog inhibitor, it's one of the few drugs that we have uh, demonstrated as survival benefit. So lotus plus galastigib, uh, response rate around 30%, 25-30% uh, compared to lotus alone, had a survival benefit, 8.8 months versus 4.5 months or 4.9 months. So really, you know, effective. We forget about this, and we use it uh, occasionally in our patients. I wanted to get your feel on on, on, on Glastigib. Do you think there's further development beyond just little CRC? How can we further in- implement this or incorporate this? I mean, I think that one of the benefits of the Glastigib LDAC that I've used in my patient population again is for treatment of that extremely frail individual. Um, the the downside right now of the HMA therapy, whether you use azacitinib and gisitabine, is the need to come in daily for mm-hmm. IV or sub-Q injections. Uh, we don't have an oral HMA approved in the frontline setting for these elderly individuals. Um, LDAC can be, at least in our center, administered at home. So that's something that patients can do, and just like an insulin shot. Uh, so the combination of a pill with an injectable L-lotocytarabine, I think, has been an approach that has certainly been effective for, for some of my older patients. LDAC is also safe in patients with kidney dysfunction. It's very well tolerated, and it's something that really minimizes their trips back and forth to the center, which for some of these elderly frail individuals can really be challenging getting in and out of a car, a walker, wheelchair, that type of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to having that option to just have them come in for occasional count checks and do all of that 10 days uh, and, and pill form is something that really could be something that we're going to see more of moving into the future. Yeah, fantastic points, Eunice. Thanks. And as we close out and as we go to further sections, I think one of the important things is that we think about in older patients, particularly those who aren't eligible for transplant or maintenance therapies. 
Oral ASA is approved, of course, among those who had intensive chemotherapy. But other maintenance strategies may be available, investigational, immune therapies, et cetera. Are you folks using uh, maintenance therapies in your older upfront patients? Dan, are you, yeah. you using uh, just oral then or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the yeah, the, the maintenance is sort of baked in when you do a venetoclax or a glastigate-based therapy or or ivacidinib for that matter. I mean, in that we don't really stop it, but you know, in the in the spirit of sort of oral azacitidine, which is of course approved for maintenance after intensive induction, or like a FLT3 inhibitor, which you know may have a role in the post-transplant setting. I personally am not doing that intentionally in older, frail populations, but I am continuing the, you know, the, the therapy that we started with, you know, with dose reductions, et cetera, to make it more manageable uh, until relapse or, you know, intolerance. Yeah, indeed. The sort of the in, you know, the built-in maintenance that's that's present in all these therapies. Guys, I really want to thank you. I think we had a great discussion. Thank you for joining us on this segment on the current treatments and management strategies in AML. Uh, be sure to click on the landing page for this activity to claim your uh, CME credit. Uh, access supplemental sides as well as other uh, topic segments. Great to see you all. Thanks. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.